0: When it comes to groups, how do you know who's on the inside and who's on the outside? You just think about some groups. Groups of Texans. Don't say you guys, they say y'all. I thought that would get an amen. (laughs) (laughs) Groups of Taylor Swift fans, I'm told they're called Swifties. They're not just Travis Kelsey bandwagon fans, they know all the lyrics to the songs. You can look at the people, but you can't see what binds them together as a group until they act. It's when they do something that you can see what's on the inside. And that shows you who's on the inside of the group. We've been studying Mark's gospel. Last week, we looked at chapter 13, where Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. Now, in chapter 14, the religious authorities want to have him killed. And the deadly desire inside of them, it reveals something deeply significant about their place outside the community that Jesus came to create. But perhaps it's not all as we should expect. So listen to God's word in Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 1 to 25. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him By stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard of it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, "'Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover?' He came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I think what we see in this text is that what's on the inside reveals who's on the outside. What's on the inside reveals who is on the outside we find a few key figures in this passage. There's the chief priests and the scribes who want to have Jesus killed. There's an unnamed woman in the outskirts of town who's eager to give what she has. There's Judas, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples and who offers the religious authorities a chance to execute on their murder plot. And there's the rest of the disciples who frankly seem quite confused about what all is going on here's the key point the people you'd expect to eagerly identify the jewish messiah they react in the opposite way that they should and the person who is socially outcast realizes what's of most value in this life what's on the inside reveals who is on the outside We're going to look at the passage in two scenes, focusing upon the two central figures that Mark shows us in his narrative. First, in the Bethany woman, we see that devotion reveals discipleship. That's in verses 1 to 9. Devotion reveals discipleship. Second, in the betrayer among the disciples, we see that deception reveals disloyalty. That's in verses 10 and following. Deception reveals reveals disloyalty. What we find in Mark 14 is that proximity can be deceiving. But devotion is always revealing. What's on the inside reveals who's on the outside. Though you might expect her to be on the outside of Jesus' disciples, and people who lived in that day would have, her devotion reveals her to be one of His followers. And though at this time you might expect Judas to be on the inside of Jesus' community, his deception reveals his disloyalty. You can see how Mark has made the first 11 verses of chapter 14 all about the woman in Bethany. Just look at the structure. Verses 1 and 2 function like a bookend with verses 10 and 11. We've seen Mark use this sandwich technique a number of times before in his gospel. The center is the main point. The woman serves as the perfect contrast of the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas. They function almost like a carnival mirror to her in the narrative. You ever been to one of those carnival fun houses? They have those mirrors that badly distort everything in view. Somebody who's tall and slender can look short and squat in one of these mirrors. Well, that's what Judas is like to this woman. Like a carnival mirror. The key issue for Mark and his first century readers is who's in the Messiah's community. Is it the unnamed woman from the outskirts of Jerusalem in Bethany? Bethany? Or is it the named Jewish member of the 12 people closest to Jesus on earth? Turns out she's the one who knows the Lord Jesus. Why? Because her devotion reveals her discipleship. Her devotion is broadcast especially clearly by the backdrop of this evil murder plot. Verse 1 gives us the setting. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was an eight-day period in which the Passover, on the first day, initiated the seven days of eating unleavened bread. We heard about the origin of this feast from Exodus 13 in our scripture reading this morning. We also see from Numbers chapter 28, verses 16 and 17, how the Lord linked these two occasions together, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He linked them together in Israel's history. The scripture says, "...on the fourteenth day of the first month is the Lord's Passover." And on the 15th day of this month is a feast. Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. This was the week in Israel's history when they had just killed the spotless lamb and eaten it and then no one ate leavened bread for a week after that. That also means this was the time when many travelers would come to Jerusalem to prepare for these Jewish festivals. That's why the chief priests and scribes needed to commit their heinous act in secret. We hear of their crafty cowardice in verse 2, and they are cowards. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. These religious authorities hated Jesus. They hated him because of all that he was doing and teaching for the last three years of his earthly ministry. But they were especially angry because he had just been at the temple and said that it was going to be destroyed. In Mark's gospel, from chapter 11 to chapter 13, we see these encounters with Jesus and the temple. Remember back in Mark 11 when Jesus cleared out the temple and closed it down? Then in Mark 13, he tells you it's all going to be turned into rubble. Not even one stone will be left in place. It will meet its end forever. Now these men want to end Jesus quietly. And we see in verses 10 and 11, Judas would give them a way to implement their murderous plans. He was the stealth they were looking for. Now, by way of application for us, I just want you to notice how God turns the plans of evil people for his own glory. That's what he's always doing. He only has evil plans of evil people to work with. And he's a master of turning evil into good. Good for his people and glory for himself. How do I know? This sinister plot would soon become the way of salvation for the whole world. In killing Jesus, these evil priests only gave us a good high priest who is able to forgive all of our sins by his own sacrifice. Our God turns evil into good. Evil will not stop God's good purposes. We even catch a glimpse of this in the text. Look where Mark goes next in verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Here we see the precious price of pure devotion. Now, a couple of things about this woman right there in the text. She's in Bethany, which is in the outskirts of Jerusalem on the fringes geographically. Notice also, she's a woman who would have been on the fringes of ancient society. You may know that women at this time didn't go to banquets like this unless they were servants there. And of course, reclining at table is a sign of close intimate fellowship over a meal. Last thing, Mark also doesn't give us her name. Other gospel writers give us a name for this woman. Mark doesn't, and that's significant. There's a strong sense in the narrative that this woman is out of place, at least socially speaking. She doesn't belong here among these people, or at least that's what a first-century Jew or Roman would have told you. In what part does she play in the meal? She breaks the neck of a vase made from a precious limestone. She pours all of its precious content out, very expensive, they tell you, in verse 5. It's pure nard, which is a highly prized perfume made of costly oil all the way from India. It could have been sold for one whole year's salary. Now, I googled an average salary in Texas this week. Sermon research, of course. And what it said was that it's about $40,000 to $60,000 a year. So just imagine buying one bottle of perfume for that much money. I bet it's one Preston Fisher wishes he had. But what does she do with it? She puts it on the head of Jesus. He's even going to say in verse 8 that she's anointed his whole body for his coming burial, because she pours all of it out. And that, of course, makes these onlookers scoff. To them, it'd be like if you took $40,000 in cash in duffel bags and lit it all on fire. but that's just because they don't have eyes to see the situation rightly. In the Old Testament, anointing the head with fragrant oil was a familiar mark of festivity and fellowship. And here, Jesus is not so much anointed as he is drenched. Drenched in scented oil. So this Bethany woman... She dramatically displays her extravagant devotion to Jesus, the Messiah. How does the crowd respond? We see it in verses 4 and 5. There were some who said to themselves, indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. They question her, they're angry with her, they consider it all a waste, and they scold her for it. Because what's on the inside reveals who's on the outside. By the way, do you know you're going to have to kill fear of man to follow Jesus? If you want to worship and serve the Lord Jesus you have to aggressively fight your own desire to care what other people think. I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time thinking about the thoughts in other people's heads, especially as they relate to me. That has to die if I want to live in Christ. You're going to have to wage war with your sin so that you don't crave the approval of man rather than God. That means... You can't be thinking about what other people are thinking when you're here singing or praying in church. I trust this woman knew something of how the people would react, but she just didn't care. And neither should we. If we want to express our devotion as disciples, that is. Like her, you're going to have to trust that Christ's commendation of you is enough. You don't need anyone else to commend you because Jesus commends you, and that's enough. Look at how Jesus commends her in the text. Notice how he receives and protects this woman from the scoffers. It's there in verses 6 through 8. Jesus says, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. She's done all that she could. She's anointed his body beforehand for burial. It's hard to imagine receiving a greater commendation of her actions. But notice what Elsie says in verse 9. This is amazing. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I take it that means everyone who reads Mark's gospel would learn of this woman even us, 2,000 years later in a very different part of the world. Hey, can you believe what Jesus said in verse seven? You always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. I wonder if that strikes you as a bit odd for Jesus to say Especially if you're here and biblical Christianity is new to you. It's kind of an odd thing for Jesus, the good religious moral teacher, to say, isn't it? Like there's a time not to give to the poor. That doesn't sound like a good moral teacher to me. People often like to say that Jesus is just a good religious teacher but it turns out there's actually something much more significant than giving to the poor. At least there is for Jesus. Jesus wants you to worship him. He wants you to give all that you have to him. He wants all of your devotion, and he's not happy with you if he has to compete with anything else in your mind or heart or life. Jesus wants it all because Jesus knows he's the only one worthy of it all. And that would be odd if he were just some good religious teacher. But he's so much more than that. Jesus is the God who made the world and everything in it. And as such, he's worth giving everything in the world for. What could be more valuable than the one who made all this valuable stuff? You might not agree with me, but if you read the Bible, this is how logic works. Something good was made by someone greater. There's nothing and no one in this world worth giving your all to. Only Jesus can bear that weight. The question is, will you worship him? Will you follow him? Your devotion reveals your discipleship. And friend, you are devoted to someone or something, and that just shows me that you're following it. You've organized your whole life around that thing that you love most. For us here as Christians, we're not saying we're better than you. We're just saying we're trying to organize our whole lives around Jesus. We love him more than everything else, so we're going to follow him and do what he says no matter what it costs us. That's what we want to do. We want to be like this woman we see in the text. Now, I want to be clear, giving to the poor is a good thing. Jesus thinks it's a good thing, which is implied by his response in verse 7. Helping the poor is good, but it is a relative good. The problem for these onlookers is that good has crowded out best. While Jesus is around, he says the poor can wait There's something much more significant taking place, and this woman shows she's sensitive to it, even more so than Jesus' closest disciples. Her devotion reveals her to be a disciple with eyes to see the significance of Jesus. And if it's true that devotion reveals discipleship, then the mirror opposite is also true. Deception reveals disloyalty. Why? Because what's on the inside reveals who's on the outside. The point of Mark's narrative here in the beginning of chapter 14 is that the community of the Messiah is counterintuitive. It's not who a first-century reader might expect it to be. It's not the religious. It's not even necessarily the Jewish. Rather, there's a new community that Jesus came to create around himself. And what a comfort this truth would have been to Mark's first-century Christian readers in Rome, especially if they were largely Gentiles. With this passage, Mark assures them that Jesus' blood brings them into this new community called the church. What a comfort to know that you can tell from someone's life what is in their heart. What a comfort that what's inside just reveals who belongs to Jesus. The next key figure introduced in our text is Judas, the one who should be on the inside of that community, but evidently is on the outside of it. Listen again to verses 10 and 11. Then Judas, Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard of it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas loved money more than Jesus. Judas loved money more than Jesus. The Bethany woman loved Jesus more than anything. So she gave up all of her money in devotion to him. Church, I hope you know that you're going to have to kill love of money if you want to follow Jesus. You're going to have to put it to death. There's not enough room in one human heart for love of money and love for Jesus. One crowds the other out. It's not the only danger for your soul in this life, but it is a great danger for your soul, the love of money. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. He goes on. It is through this craving loving money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know how I know money makes a bad God? Money requires you to be pierced for it. Jesus got pierced so you wouldn't have to be. That's why Scripture says those who love money will pierce themselves because money demands that you have more of it. And if you love money, you'll do whatever it takes to get more of it. doesn't matter who stands in your way. doesn't matter what evil you have to do. Jesus is better than money. He's more precious, more valuable. He's more powerful than anything money can buy you. He's more merciful and generous than money will ever be to you. I promise. If you want to fight the love of money, can I just make one recommendation to you? Give it away. It's really hard to keep loving the thing you keep getting rid of. So give it to the poor. Give it to the church. Give it to whoever needs it more than you. But give it so that people will make much of Jesus and so that you can make much of Jesus. Whatever you do with it, beware of the love of money. Because here in Mark 14, it's the love of money that led to a friend's betrayal. Judas was the opportunity the religious leaders found to arrest and kill Jesus. Now notice where the passage goes next. I think we need to see this. We leave the Bethany woman and Judas is what you might think. You might think we're leaving all that stuff that just happened. But I think Judas actually serves as the hinge to get from the social outsider back to the group of Jesus' disciples. It's all about who's in the group. Mark put these two passages next to each other for a reason. Who's in the Messiah's community? What's on the inside reveals who's on the outside. If you look down at your Bible in verses 12 to 25, you can see Mark has the betrayer Judas in the middle again, starting at verse 17. Remember, the middle of one of Mark's sandwiches is the point. You see how verses 12 and 16 are preparation for the Passover, and verses 20 and 25 are the eating of the Passover? They're like parallel sides around Jesus' prophecy of Judas' betrayal. Don't think that Jesus doesn't know what Judas is up to. Just like he prepared for the meal, he prepared to be betrayed. Jesus knows what's going to happen before it happens. But first, in verses 12 to 16, Jesus has clearly made plans to observe the Passover meal with his followers. This section shows us how he prepared for the occasion by finding a place for them to dine together. Why? Because he knows they're not just coming together for another meal. They're not even just coming together for another Passover. This will be their last supper together. He says that at the end. I'm not going to eat it again until the new kingdom, right? But notice what Mark tells us happens while they're eating. Look at verses 17 and 18. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Imagine your meal being interrupted by the host predicting that one of you is going to betray him. That's a jarring thought. The person who brought you here to eat this meal just said, one of you is going to kill me. Sure is some last supper. Jesus knows of Judas' deception, which reveals both Jesus' deity and Judas's disloyalty. See, proximity can be deceiving. It doesn't matter that Judas is sitting at the table with them all right there in their midst. It doesn't matter that he's followed Jesus with this group for years. What matters most is what's inside his heart. And you can tell by how he acts. What's on the inside reveals who's on the outside. I hope you realize too, for you and I, if we regularly attend church on Sundays, proximity can be deceiving. Like Judas, just because you're physically close does not mean you're spiritually close to Jesus. Just because you come here for church every week doesn't necessarily mean you're right with God. Religious activity cannot and will not save you from God's coming judgment. Because we could never do enough good to overcome all the bad we all know we've done. All right, notice how the disciples respond to what Jesus says. Look at verse 19. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? They're all stung with self-doubt. There's a sense in which all of us should respond this way to the word of God. It pierces us. There's a reason the scripture calls itself a sword. It's because it cuts when we read or hear God's word, we should let it challenge us and even correct us. It should lead us to examine ourselves, to expose our sin so that we might repent. Self doubt should lead to self examination and ultimately to repentance and faith. Now, Judas doesn't need to wonder if it's him, he knows. Jesus continues in verses 20 and 21. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus plainly says that betraying him is worse than never having existed. If you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, I'm afraid you might think you're better than Judas. And you might be better than Judas, but you're not better off than him. Apart from Jesus, none of us can stand in the judgment of God. The one who made us is angry that we've sinned against him. He will rightly judge us. Judgment is coming we as Christians just want you to know you don't have to suffer under it because Jesus made a way for us to be saved. Jesus lived the life we did not live. He never sinned against God. And Jesus died the death that we deserve. We should be punished for our sin. Jesus was punished for our sin so that we wouldn't have to be. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead promising life and victory and salvation and forgiveness and fellowship with God for anyone who puts their trust in him. You just have to turn from the way you've been living and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. And if you've not done that, I'd be happy to talk with you more after the service about what that means. Or you can frankly just turn to the left or to the right and talk to any member of this church. They would love to take you out to lunch and talk about Jesus. Our devotion reveals our discipleship. We love him, so we love talking about him. Especially how he saved us from sin. But Mark doesn't just include Judas' betrayal in his account of the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And Mark's account is the shortest in all of the Gospels, so it's really important for us to see what he does include. Mark shows us how Jesus reinterprets and replaces the Passover with a new meal. This new meal would be repeated among Jesus' disciples Listen again to verses 22 to 25 as I read. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it new in the kingdom of God. Some cultural context will help us see the significance of what Jesus is doing here. Even though it's not his home, Jesus is clearly hosting this meal. He determined the guest list, we might say. Typically at the Passover meal, every year in Jewish families, the father or the head of the household stands up, to explain the symbolism of each aspect of the dinner. In this case, Jesus takes that role upon himself. But he gives this new this meal new symbolism, exposing how it points to him. Jesus says the bread represents his body and the cup represents his blood. He's taking the traditional symbolism of the Passover and transforming it. This meal will now be a new kind of Passover. For the new people of God, which Jesus forms around himself. Who's in the Messiah's community? Everybody who's covered by the blood. You can see that in the language of covenant, which is there in verse 24. This would be the meal that would draw the boundary line around the people of the Messiah. Jesus replaces the old covenant with a new covenant. And he replaces the Passover with the Lord's Supper. Remember how Moses would sprinkle the blood of the covenant on the people. You can see it in Exodus 24. Well, this new covenant wouldn't be made with the blood of bulls and goats. It would be the blood of Jesus that creates this new covenant and this new community of this new covenant. This Messiah doesn't just dine with his disciples. He would go to die for them. People come to the Lord's Supper to dine with Jesus because they are covered by his blood and a part of his body which he gave for them. Jesus is our Passover lamb, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. So if you're here and you're worried that you're like Judas, maybe you're worried hearing all this that you're deceiving yourself into thinking that you're one of Jesus' disciples. I think that's a good worry to have. Self-doubt should produce self-examination, as we've seen from the text. But the Lord gave us this supper to fight sin and self-deception in our own lives. The Lord's Supper marks out the church as a church. It's the visible sign of our regular, accountable fellowship as Christians. This is why church membership and discipline are so important for us spiritually, In church membership, we're all saying who we think is with the Lord based upon their words and their life. In church discipline, we remove someone's access to the Lord's Supper because their life no longer looks like they belong with the Lord. If you're covered by his blood, something inside of you changes and we can see by what's outside of you. That's why discipline should sober us. It's why we should take membership so seriously. But if you're here and you're regularly taking the supper with us, then be encouraged. When we come to the table, this whole church is telling you with one clear voice, we don't think you're deceiving yourself. We think you're with Jesus. He's going to come back and take us all home. Remember, church, you don't get to this table by yourself You get there because the blood of Jesus cleanses you from sin, and you don't come to this table by yourself. You come with the church of Christ, helping you to follow after him. Jesus shed his blood for us so that we wouldn't have to suffer God's punishment for our sins, and his blood covers all who come to him in faith. He left us this supper to remember, celebrate, and proclaim his death until he comes again. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we know that we can't hold on to you unless you hold on to us. And so we pray that you would. Help us, Lord, as we seek to follow after you, to help each other to do the same. Give us grace, we pray. Amen.